from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, I'm joined by my colleague Rachel Keith for another look at New Hanover County's 12 low-performing schools and a new task force that's been created to help turn those schools around. That means understanding the challenges being faced by schools like Rachel Freeman, Forest Hills, and Snipes. And as we've discussed in past shows about low-performing schools, it's a complicated set of factors, many of which revolve around ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, and more broadly, the stresses and traumas that children, especially those from low-income families, are dealing with outside the classroom. It's important to note that in our conversations with faculty, staff, administrators, and experts, there's been no one single issue that is keeping these schools from succeeding. Some might hope for a silver bullet, and even stubbornly hold on to that hope in the face of evidence, but the growing consensus is that it will take a concerted effort on multiple fronts to turn these schools around. So for this episode, we'll check in with the Turnaround Task Force's work to help improve these schools and see how the conversation is evolving after its second meeting. To do that, I'm joined by WHQR's own Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. So it's impossible to talk about this Turnaround Task Force without talking about ACEs. And some of the task force members were really key on having this discussion as the task force moves forward. Yes. And this task force, this is the second one, they invited two principals to speak to the members. And one of them was Diego Lee Hockey, and he is the former principal of Sunset Park. He's going to Forest Hills next school year. And here he is talking about seeing student trauma firsthand. It's hard for a year, the things that happen to these kids, you'd be surprised if they're doing as well as they do. DSS and more like this because you know there's so many times where you have to call and they they trust the teacher enough or the counselor if they didn't tell them then no one would ever know. We had a couple of cases recently you know where we just notice things you have to start asking you find out and that, that's part of the teaching too that no one talks about it's, it's not just well the A B C D one right. two three it's everything right goes with that. And so we have heard and seen in the comment section that, you know, maybe this is being exaggerated or that this is just a product of post-pandemic misbehavior. But there, there really is a lot of trauma-based problems going on in the schools. And we also heard from Scott Wisnett, right? Scott Wisnett, formerly of NHRMC, he is talking about here that, and we've discussed this on the newsroom before, about getting training for teachers and staff about trauma-informed learning so that they can help deal with some of these issues that are in front of them. There's a resiliency task force. You can get training for that. The issue with the training is, will it be permanent? If you don't follow it up and stick with it, then it's just a day out of your life to learn something and you move on. So how do we make the school experience from the eyes of the students coming in who are living these lives, how do we make it safe appropriate, uh, trustworthy, and a place for them where they can be ready to learn. And this is something you and I have both discussed with Scott, which is that this is not going to be an easy fix. This isn't going to be like a weekend extra credit project for teachers. This has to become, from his point of view, a part of the culture of a school and how they basically engage in education. Yes, and what we talk about with the lowest, the 12 lowest performing schools in our district is the need for this type of training and to be trauma 
informed. So again, you can address the behavior. And again, this is a, a consistent commitment to that. And there was talk at this last meeting that there might be an ad hoc committee created by the district to talk about this issue and the task force did create these subcommittees and one of them was student mental health and then we do have Scott talking about the issue in these lowest performing schools and we've already talked about this that there are larger amounts of ACEs so if students are all that they have issues with trauma and there's 20 of them in a classroom he said quote that if they start firing on each other, now the teachers are overwhelmed. So that is the issue that they're trying to address. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about that later in the show when we get to some of the possible solutions for this. But suffice it to say, being informed about ACEs and and trauma definitely has to be a part of it. And that is not free, right? So training isn't free. Additional staff isn't free. So I know when we talk about task force, often there is some cynicism. It's like, oh, they're going to write a strongly worded letter. But no, we, we are talking about some real solutions that we'll get to. But as one of the experts you talked to said, it's not, you can't do it on the cheap. I also think it's important that the task force talked about this has an impact on teachers. The teachers who are in these low-performing schools are in a difficult situation. And, and, and one principal in particular spoke about that. Yes. And she actually was not at this task force meeting, but I had a separate interview. Her name is Christiane May. She is the principal at Castle Hayne Elementary. I think one of the things for us, anytime we have students that have severe behaviors, and and it happens, is helping the teachers understand that it's okay for them to be upset about it. And let's come together and talk. And what can we do to support you? How, you know, how can we help you being a shoulder to cry on? Because it is traumatic for the teacher, but it's also traumatic for the other students. And that's one thing we've heard anecdotally from a number of teachers who work at some of these low-performing schools, especially when it's a white teacher with a predominantly black or black and Hispanic class, is that they often feel bad publicly discussing the behavioral issues because they feel like they're going to be unintentionally feeding into a racist narrative where these students are misbehaving just because of their race. That's clearly not true. The evidence-based studies show this is because of ACEs. It's because of the history of systemic racism, systemic inequality, low-income neighborhoods, all of these issues that sort of compound to create these behavioral issues. But it feeds into this narrative. And we saw this in some of the needs assessment where principals were talking about their schools where they're saying, you know, we have this undeserved bad reputation. People speak really cruelly about these schools. And so that's tough on the teachers because they feel like in part they, one, they should just suck it up, right? They should just suck it up and do the job. And two, that if they're complaining about the schools, that it could be construed in this inappropriate way. Yeah. And if you look at the most recent climate survey that the district did not too long ago, and we have the working conditions survey in North Carolina, and then you have national stories that student behavior is becoming more and more problematic and an issue. And it affects, you know, it's been affecting a lot of the schools like we talked about post-pandemic. And they are really trying to address it the best they can. But we talked about earlier that they're asking for more staff to address that potentially. And then I did talk to Diego Lee Hockey. He came into the studio along with May. He did come to that task force. But he did talk about this issue that the teachers and the staff really want to help support the students. But again, the dealing with the misbehavior is not easy. This is a chance where you can change those behaviors around. Let them know, you know, you are loved. You, you are a good kid. Everything is going to work out. And But again, the teacher, you have to support the teachers as well because you know, no one wants to get hit or bit or spit at work. I mean, that's just not... 
that's not what you signed up for and it's not right for anyone. And so at that same time, you know, that's why you have that support staff that can take the kids out of that classroom for that short amount of time and then integrate them back in. It's a process. Like I said, it's, gonna, it, it's not going to happen overnight. And that's part of a conversation we've had when it comes to things like seclusion rooms and suspensions, which many advocates are just absolutely disgusted with as options for dealing with in-class behavior. And one of the things we've heard from for teachers who might agree with them, but they're saying, what are our other options? A lot of the resources and training around how to deal with these behavioral issues sort of take as a given that there are enough staff to handle this so that you have one person who can take an individual student who might be like, you know, the first part of a chain reaction, take them out of the classroom, okay, calm everything down, take them somewhere, have a conversation with them, let them calm down. But that implies that there's an extra staff member. So there are ways of approaching this, but again, they are not free. They do involve human power, salaries, so on and so forth. That's right. And Christiane May of Castle Hayne Elementary, I mean, she is so grateful to, that the district provides her school with one counselor and one social worker, but she's saying that this is what we come back to, that they're asking for more because it is a big issue. I don't think we have enough people to help all the needs of our students. And it's not for lack of effort. It's just that the needs are so tremendous. My mental health specialist who works for the Department of Health and Human Services, his caseload has been full for probably two-thirds of the school year. And so, you know, there are students that are on a wait list to receive mental health services. And I think the more people we can have that are working hands-on with students, the better the students are. So this is something we saw with Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust when they had to kind of scale back some of the positions they had funded with basically COVID relief money, with ESSER funds, you've heard them called. And he came into the studio and had a long conversation with me about this issue. And he pointed out, look, there's a counselor in every school and we still have all the resources we need to handle these student behavioral health and mental health issues. But you take that in one hand and then you look at, for example, the principal needs assessment that you got from the district and really sort of picked apart and looked into. And you see, for example, the principal from Rachel Freeman saying, I need six. I need six mental health professionals working in my school. And that's just a big disparity. Yeah. I mean, this needs assessment they did with 12 principals of these low-performing schools, and staffing was number one. And a lot of it was around student mental health. It was also around academic support. And we're going to talk later that, yes, there are good supports in this district, but like May said, we're going to go back to this. The needs are so great. So what do we need to do with that type of feedback? Another issue that task force dealt with is there are some real stars in the system, principals and teachers who do a great job and have led some of these schools on their way out of being low performing. Um, Lee Hockey is one of those. But one of the questions is, is this are we just spreading around a limited talent pool? Yes. And. Task Force member Natalie English of the Chamber of Commerce, she asked, why are you leaving Sunset Park after seven years when you've done so well? Because um, Dr. Patrice Faison, the chief academic officer, she in part leads this task force and she does put Lee Hockey and people like Christiane May on a pedestal that they're doing so well. But she's saying, what is the school going to do now that 
he's not there, but he responded to her that it's really the teachers that make that school and not him and that he feels like they will get a new person, a good candidate because of the reputation he and his staff have built over seven years. And this is what he said about taking the helm at Forest Hills next year. I just think about the kids. Those kids deserve the best education they can get. And for whatever reason, it's not showing up on paper. But I think that's going to change rather quickly if I have anything to do with her. You know, the teachers are really the ones that are going to be able to drive that and make it happen. And we have, I talked to, we're going to hear from later, two other academic researchers, but one of them I talked to is Dr. Lam Pham of NC State University. And in his work, he's seen this phenomenon, and we do know that Lee Hockey is going to take some of his staff with him to Forest Hills to rebuild that school. And here's what he said about that. So some of the work that I've been doing more recently has found that when uh, a local performing school recruits a highly effective teacher, that teacher often comes from another local performing school that's nearby that doesn't have you know the label, but it's still like very low performing in many of the similar metrics. And so um, the idea of are we taking from some schools to support specific schools and are we just kind of shifting limited resources around? I think that's something that at the district level, these planning committees need to be thinking about. So part of this is about just how many talented people does the district have? How can they recruit more? And we're going to get into that a little bit later. One thing that came out of the task force that actually really surprised me, because I, I just did not think about this that deeply, was just how important the role of volunteers is. Yes, and Lee Hockey and Christiane May talked about this when I interviewed them. They said, like some more affluent schools that have PTAs, that have parent room volunteers to help support the teachers, their schools necessarily don't. And so they ask for support from local churches or from local businesses. And in part of this discussion with the task force and in this principal needs assessment, the lowest performing schools, of course, people out in the community talk about these schools and what's wrong with them and how can we help. And here's Diego Lee Hockey talking about if people want to help support them. And we're always looking for people to volunteer. If you're interested, you know, come read with a kid, come read to a class. Instead of staying on the outside and just criticizing, what, what are you doing to help? Like, what is your solution rather than just always the negative, this is what's wrong, you know? I can say we spoke at great length here at WHQR with a former employee of Rachel Freeman. And we're still working on sort of contextualizing some of the things that she told us, but she spoke to how really important the PTA had been in Rachel Freeman's past. And that is kind of gone by the wayside. And when it was up and running and there were a lot of community volunteers really engaged, they had things like a parent camp that would teach parents about upcoming stuff on the curriculum and the syllabus, preparing the parents to help the kids with their homework. Because frankly, sometimes they deal with parents who have low reading levels or are even functionally illiterate or aren't great at math. And so that's a tough situation because you're really relying on the parents to help kids with their homework. So issues like that were dealt with not just through great staff and great teachers, but also through this network of volunteers. And when it went away, at least anecdotally, we've heard that the effect was devastating. Yeah, and at this task force meeting and in my first piece of this series, three-part series I did, the schools are asking, they are putting it out there that they want businesses, they want nonprofits, churches to help support 
the kids in the schools. And specifically, Dr. Faison was talking about getting lunch buddies and first grade reading buddies, people that will make a consistent, this is important, what I've heard from a lot of people in the community, they don't want volunteers who are one and done, but people who really want to make an investment and stay with these kids so that they build trust, they build family, they build community. And Lee Hockey did talk about this, and so did May, that some of the families, some of the low-income families, they're working two and three jobs. They're doing the best that they can, and sometimes they don't have the resources to give, hence asking for the community support. Some of the experts you talked to also looked at learning styles. Again, sometimes this can be an uncomfortable conversation, but there's just really different, profoundly different experiences that kids are having in the household, and that kind of impacts the way that they learn and the kind of experiences they have access to. Yes, I talked to Lynn Moody. She's the former superintendent of the Roe and Salisbury District. She now works with the nonprofit Spark NC. She's their senior director of partnerships. And again, like you said, Ben, they are trying to build problem solving. They're trying to build experiences for kids who come from low-income families because they don't have the access to the same experiences and resources that middle and upper class families do. So here she is talking about this distinction. If you know much about children of poverty, often their vocabulary is business language in their homes. It's like tie your shoes, get your books together. These are the rules around our household to make it manage because there may be conflicting interests of time where children of wealth have more conversations in their home about what do you dream about? What's your favorite color? And that lends to a larger vocabulary for students. So as a community, one bold idea is how do you think about how we can provide our students with experiences that are rich so they have something to hook knowledge to. And one of the examples that Moody gave was that one of her principals in this district, they use their Title I funds, and those are funds to help support students of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, that she used her funding to create experiences for the kids. And a couple of these experiences involved taking the first graders on a couple of fishing trips. So this is what she said about that. Because of that, they would check out every book in the library about legs and life jackets, and they hooked all of the learning for those few weeks around that. Like, how do you graft how many pieces of litter is on the ground near the leg? How would you solve for that problem? Okay, well, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we do have to take a quick break. We're going to talk about three academic education experts and what they told you, Rachel. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Now, Rachel, you interviewed some experts in this field to get the lay of the land. And I think that was important because we've spoken to a lot of folks, including some of those on the task force, who work in the district. And they're very earnest about their desire to improve these schools. But I have noticed there is a bit of defensiveness. It is sometimes hard to fix a problem without admitting that there is a problem. And part of this issue also has to do with, as we're going to talk about, funding. And we've seen a very 
sort of deliberate posture from the, the school district over the last couple of years, especially the last budget cycle, that they do not need more money. We heard this from Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust, who was very clear and direct that despite the calls from some education advocates, he was not going to be asking the county for more money, even when it meant something like making up for the loss of federal COVID funds, those ESSER funds, to keep mental health professionals in schools. So going outside of the district to maybe get a little bit more of an objective view of the issue, even if it is academic, it is based on evidence-based studies, you tell me? Yes, and it was really important for me to talk to people who study these things. And all three of these people have spent their whole careers doing educational research. And so I talked to Dr. Robert Smith of UNCW. I talked to Dr. Thurston Domina of UNC Chapel Hill and Dr. Lamb Pham of NC State University. And they've done most of their work. They have studied turnaround schools and what works. And I mean, this whole task force, their whole goal is to understand what will fix the issue of Rachel Freeman versus Masonboro and how can these disparities be in the same county. Okay, so let's get into it. You asked them, what works? And one thing that always comes up is money. So tell me about that conversation. Yes, I said, what is it? Is it the money? Is it a specific number? Is it a specific percentage? Um, Is it the climate? Is it the resource? Is it something else? So here's what Dr. Smith of UNCW said. On the one hand, money is important and money may make a difference. On the other hand, people who choose to teach don't choose to teach because of the money. Those two pieces have got to be weighed up. And most of the teachers I've talked with over the past couple years, they know that they get into the job because they're public servants, they love children, they love learning, they love academics. But we talk about all the time, they have families, they have needs, they have, obviously, prices are going up for homeownership and rent, and they need to be having a comfortable wage. So, and then it is such a demanding profession. And But it's interesting to see that it's difficult to put an exact monetary number on any of these. And Dr. Pham of NC State, here's what he said about, is it the money? Is it something else? Yeah, I do not think that the research can give you a clear answer on funding versus other non-funding factors like work conditions. I think those are both very important and we shouldn't ignore either one and we can't ignore either one. And we probably should not be pitting them against each other. You know, I think that's a sort of a, a false competition that detracts from, I think, what is the most effective route to improving low performing schools. And this is something we're going to hear every time we talk to these experts because they are not politicians. So they are not here to read off bullet points, especially silver bullet points. <laughs> that's right. They kept saying every issue that you brought to them, like, there isn't a silver bullet here. There's some best practices. And so when it comes to how do you get good teachers, right? How do you recruit them and retain them? That's really the issue we're talking about here. Money's part of it, but that's not all of it. I mean, we've heard such a broad swath of answers from teachers when we talk to them about why they love or don't love their job. Sometimes it's the kids. Sometimes it's the commute. Sometimes it's very, let's be honest, it's very rarely the pay, right? But some pay is better than other pay. Some districts have better insurance plans. Some schools have great communities. Some schools have more freedom about how they can teach in the classroom. Some schools are just really difficult. And no matter how much money you pay someone, no matter how good the insurance benefits, how short the commute, how great the staff you work with is, that's going to be a tough 
gig. And we've also heard it has a lot to do with leadership. So teachers will stick it out at a tough school with challenging students if they have a good principal. Likewise, a principal will stay at a tough school if and only if they're really getting support from central administration. And I got to say, that is a thing we hear a lot is that many of the teachers and principals in these challenging schools, these low performing schools, feel like they're a little cut off from Dr. Faust and his central administration. Yeah, I mean, we looked at the working condition survey last year and 33% of principals in the district felt they were valued by the district. And I did talk to Christopher Barnes. He's one of the assistant superintendent. Um, He works in human resources and he knows how important they are to the district's success and they are here for them is what he said. And when we talk about, we just heard Dr. Pham say most effective route to improving low performing schools schools. And that is the high quality teacher. And so in this task force discussion, they talk a lot about what does it mean to be high quality? And mostly what I'm hearing after only two meetings attending those is a lot about this EVA score. And I've talked about this in my reporting before. And if for people that don't know, it is a software written by SAS and basically the algorithm, we really don't know what goes into it. But it is a good measure of student growth on end of year tests. And it is on growth, how they came in at the beginning of the year and how they finished the year. And what I hear is that if you have three or four years for a specific teacher, it is pretty good in predicting how a student can be with this teacher and how much that they will grow. But there is some statistical noise associated with it, of course. Um, Did the student have a bad day? Were there other extraneous factors that the student didn't do well? If they were absent a lot that year, there's been a lot of discussion on that. But Dr. Thurston Domina of UNC, it was really interesting for me to hear is that EVOS should not be the sole factor in looking at high-quality teachers. And here's what he said. It's got some fancy math that underlies it, but that's that's what it is. So I think if we don't hold that one measure, put it on a pedestal and think of it to the exclusion of all others, it's a fine part of the conversation. That I would also think about things like teacher experience, board certification, teacher licensing, teacher participation in professional development. And look, again, we should say that the district does use other tools to gauge teacher performance, things like observations. But in the conversations we've been hearing lately, it's been mostly about EVOS. And that seems to be a slightly outsized role based on what experts are telling us. Yes. And of course, we want various variables in order to make a larger conclusion. And if you have one measure, I mean, that's a little limiting. Yeah. So what we're talking about here, recruiting and retaining great teachers as a way to deal with low-performing schools is kind of predicated on one way of solving this problem, or at least addressing this problem. And that is a community school model. So this is, let's talk about the elephant in the room. This is kind of the opposite of redistricting. So what we're talking about is leaving the schools the way they are right now with the student populations they have. And that means, quite frankly, low-income Black and Hispanic students clustered into a few schools where there are a lot of ACEs, a lot of IEPs, staffing problems, and all of the issues that we've talked about in your reporting over over the past year or two, Rachel. And so it's basically saying we're going to accept that as the state of the universe, right? And we're just going to try and get the best possible teachers in there. But there is always another option on the table, and that's redistricting. Right. And here's Dr. Domina saying what this means. 
uh, it's hard to attract and retain teachers in those high-need schools. So one aspect of this conversation that is really hard politically, but that I hope that folks are talking about, is to think about how to make schools where all the schools in the district look more like one another. And this is a conversation, Rachel, you and I had over lunch one day with Scott Wisnant, who is on the task force, where he, like some of the academics you talk to, doesn't think redistricting is a silver bullet. But what it can do is tackle two problems. One is the bad reputation problem, the school where it's just hard to get teachers there because they've heard nothing but bad things about it. And also because maybe the community is dealing with a lot of other issues like systemic racism, like pervasive low incomes. And so you don't have the kind of community support like through PTAs and volunteers and stuff like that. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is kind of like this nuclear reaction metaphor that he used where you have one kid who goes off who sets off the two kids next to him and the two kids next to them and so on and so forth. It doesn't make those kids' lives any easier. Those kids are still going to be dealing with their ACEs and their IEPs and whatever else is going on in their life. But it kind of dilutes it, right? So you've got more kids who may be not dealing with as much, less likely to be set off. And that reduces the chance, doesn't eliminate, reduces the chance that a teacher will be caught in that terrifying situation where they just lose control of a class because the kids have all set each other off. And so that was sort of Scott Wisnett's approach to redistricting was, again, not a silver bullet, but one way of looking at this. Yeah. And I mean, Dr. Domina was pretty clear that if you want to fix the retention issue, then that is one clear way to do it, because teachers want to stay in schools that are balanced and aren't in high need schools where they're so overwhelmed that they can't focus on just teaching. And that's what a lot of teachers want to do. I mean, of course, they want to be there for their students and their families, but their number one job is to be a teacher and teach academics. So, I mean, that's what they're they're saying. And Dr. Pham of NC State, he agrees with Dr. Domina. I mean, systemically, if we can work towards schools that are more racially integrated, the research is also very clear that higher integration into schools has benefits for students of of all races. So he says that the research is clear. I mean, it's benefits for students, and that benefit is an academic benefit as well. So, I mean, they are saying if you decide to have schools that look more like each other and that the whole community is invested and people aren't ignoring one segment of our county, you have better buy-in with pretty much everyone across the board. But again, these researchers, they continually go back to the political climate that has the will to do this or not. And then here is Dr. Domina. If the task force looks at one of these options and he calls it student assignments, I mean, this is a big lift. All this conversation sits in the context of intergenerational poverty and structural racism, right? And so it's understanding that what we're asking schools to do is to break these huge systemic processes that generate these outcomes. So we have to give ourselves some grace. We have to recognize that these are bit by bit, piece by piece, coalition and community building efforts. They're not just like one and done. We're going to fix the schools. And I think that touches on something that we hear a lot, which is about the history of Williston here in Wilmington, once proclaimed as the greatest school under the sun. And, you know, you talk to people who were here in Wilmington in the 50s and 60s. This was the beating heart of the black community in Wilmington. People were proud to go there, proud to be alumni from there. And when it was shuttered as part of, ironically, as part of desegregation, the community felt 
really hurt. And so it can be difficult sometimes for people to say, well, if segregation is the enemy here, if segregation is a bad thing, why was Williston so good? And the answer you will get from people, and you can flash back to our community conversation about black history in Wilmington and hear some of the older generation talk about this, is that when there was a community around Williston, that's what made it really great. And I mean, if you ask, you will get some harsh and frank answers about what has happened to the black community, specifically what's been done to the black community by over-policing, by redlining, by systemic inequality. And that is what makes it difficult to have a community school. So that's why we're having the conversation we're having. It's not an all or nothing. It's not that a community school that might be largely white or largely Hispanic or largely black is necessarily bad. It's about what happens when you concentrate all of the ACEs. It's about what happens when you concentrate all of the resources at largely white affluent schools. So it's not as simple as just, oh, if we set up a checklist and make sure there's enough black and white students in every school, then we will be okay. It's, it's way more complicated. Yes. And I mean, Dr. Domina said this discussion of fixing these schools is a yes and discussion. So there are many different ideas and combination, and it's got to fit the community that we live in. We can't just take and pull, even though there are some good examples, like they mentioned the Harlem Children's Zone, they mentioned a school district in Memphis, Tennessee, they talked about the efforts that Mississippi are doing around community school models. But New Hanover County has to have their own organic decision. But we've already talked with these researchers. And yes, I mean, having schools that look more like one another have payoffs um, with teacher retention and student outcomes. Yeah. So I think that's a good place to leave that conversation. If for no other reason than for the moment right now, politically, desegregating the schools, redistricting seems to be completely off the table politically. This task force still has to improve these schools, so they got to look at other options, which we'll get into. But first, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm here with my colleague, Rachel Keith, talking about New Hanover County Schools Turnaround Task Force. This is a task force aimed at improving the performance of 12 schools here in the district. So before the break, we were talking about redistricting and how that might help, even though it's not a real political possibility right now. And the academic experts that you talked to, Rachel, would basically say, hey, if it were up to us, we would redistrict tomorrow and then probably do a bunch of other stuff as well, because as we said, there are no silver bullets. But we got to live in the moment and sort of be realistic and pragmatic. So the task force has talked about some other options. Yes. And well, we have Dr. Domina, I did want to say this, that he said to consider, would you open up spots in, say, Masonboro Elementary to some lower income families so that they had some choice? And then obviously we do have some lottery schools in this district We have two year-round elementary schools. We have three magnet schools. And magnet schools are another way to allow families of low means to go to a better school, per se. But the data bears out that a lot of these magnet schools that they have identified are pretty much still only attracting the community that it's in, and that is the community of low-income families and um, families of color. And here's Dr. Smith talking about this of UNCW. 
We currently still have schools that are theme-based, Forest Hills, Snipes, Gregory, but my sense is that these schools are not doing what a magnet school is intended to do, which is to, the whole idea of a magnet is that it draws students from outside of the district. That may be worth looking at in terms of whether reinvigorated magnet school program could work to draw a, a better mix of students. So yeah, his point of view is to potentially revamp the district's magnet programs because again, like he said, they're not drawing from outside of the communities that they serve at this point. And a quick note we should make here is that we hear from readers and listeners quite often that there is an overcrowding problem in some of the district schools. But many of these low-performing schools are not overcrowded. No. Many of the magnet schools are not overcrowded. So there's empty desks waiting for students, but it's going to take some, if we're not going to redistrict, it's going to take some other approach. And to get some of these schools to the level where that might be a political possibility, it's going to take money, Rachel Keith. Yes. And here is Dr. Domina talking about, can you do it without people? Can you improve schools without staffing, increasing staffing levels a lot? Yeah, probably, but it's a lot harder. But you just can't do that on the cheap. You can't ask teachers to teach well and, 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 right? They're not nurses. They're not counselors. They're not social workers. They try hard to do all of those things, but they have limits. I think one thing we can say about all of the candidates in the most recent school board election in 2022 was that they all said we're asking teachers to do too much. And I don't think teachers would disagree. I think part of this issue is that there is a disconnect here when you hear an academic say, or someone like uh, Patrice Faison, the chief academic officer, say, oh, we can't spend our way out of this. This isn't a problem we can fix just with money. And then you hear teachers asking for higher salaries and you say, and you hear academic experts saying, well, you can't do this on the cheap. I think that disconnect comes from how complicated this is. Because yeah, you can't just buy your way out of it, but you can't not buy your way out of it. And I mean, we see the data bears this out that these lower performing schools, they do have higher per pupil spending. They do have smaller class sizes. And the district likes to talk about this issue. And going back to the principal's needs assessment that we talked about earlier, is that We said that these principals, these leaders are asking for more people to address these large needs in their schools. And here's Dr. Pham saying, if you're going to do these needs assessments, you actually have to listen to them. If a school needs $10 and they have three and that's more than other schools, that's still not enough. So this idea of they do receive more is nice, but is that enough to do this very difficult work of school turnaround? That's the question. And, you know, uh, I think it varies depending on the district and the school. But if we're not seeing improvement, then particularly if the school leaders and educators in those schools are still telling us that they need resources, then that school doesn't have enough resources to do what they need to do. Yes. And Dr. Pham, he also talked talked about this issue about where the money should go. And he said pretty much it needs to go into supporting human capital. He said that is the number one most important place to place your resources. Here he is. 
supporting in technology or lots of highly up-to-date textbooks, those kinds of things, they are very good and important. But if I were a school administrator, I'd want to funnel all of my money into the people who are going to be working with students every single day. That's the most important thing. And investing in people, too, we know is very expensive because it's a recurring cost each year. If you're going to up their salary or add more people, I mean, that is a recurring cost. That's not a check the box, buy the iPad and be done with it. And the district did heavily invest in this initiative called One to One. Right. And you can kind of understand why they would want to do this because they ended up in so much sort of popular opinion hot water because they had to remove these positions that they had funded with ESSER. And you could understand why the district would want to use some of its ESSER funding on one-time capital or technology purchases or investments because they don't have to worry about being in that situation where they add positions with a limited time of funding and then have to take them away and deal with the public sentiment about that. But through your reporting, you found that $56 million has been spent, some, a lot of that from ESSER, over this five-year plan to basically put a device in every kid's hands. And we've heard some people who are very happy about that, but we've also heard people on both sides of the political aisle saying, like, maybe we should pause this and focus on human capital, even though that does require year-after-year spending. Basically, if you hire a person, it's not like buying an iPad. You're now on the hook for that salary every year. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, they are on the hook for maintenance and things like that, potentially replacing the devices, but that's not a person's salary, right? But this past budget cycle from my reporting, it was not as contentious. The year before, that was real contentious. And well, I went back to the reporting when the TAs were doing demonstrations and saying they would walk away from the district if they didn't get the increase in salary and they didn't. I mean, you do have the chair, Pete Wildeboer, he wasn't the chair at the time, saying maybe we should be a hold on this one-to-one initiative, but it did end up going through. So one of my big takeaways from all of this is that most of the experts are saying, look, we really need to treat this problem holistically. Again, no several bullets. We need a bunch of different buckets that we're putting money into. That includes faculty. That includes support staff. That includes mental health experts. And we've seen some resistance to that kind of thinking from the current administration, including the superintendent, who has said things like, it's not really our job to be covering mental health. We have a counselor, but basically we're, we're going to send students to a third party for mental health issues. The experts are saying it's gestalt. You have to deal with all of this, and that costs money. And if you're going to go through this community model, which it looks, if you're not going to redistrict or think about student assignments, then it will be this community model, which is very costly. Yeah. And so this whole conversation, I think it's worth noting, is taking place at a time when education advocates on the left consider public education to be under attack by conservatives. And one of the the sort of two things that are happening are legislation that is making it easier for charter schools to operate and also removing them from sort of state and federal regulations and oversight, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other newsroom. Yes, we are thinking about that. Yes, please send us your thoughts to staffnews at whqr.org or newsroom at whqr.org. But charter schools pull money out of the public school system for better or worse. And... There's also legislation, sometimes referred to as backpack funding legislation, that follows this conservative argument that money should follow the individual student, whether that student goes to a charter school or even a private school. And what we've heard from conservative leaders like Tim Moore, Phil Berger, is that it makes no sense to give schools money to educate kids who aren't there. And at a certain level, that makes some sense. If you look at how school budgets work, right, there isn't like a massive state and federal appropriation for 
overhead administration, and then another one for individual students. So I like to give this example. So imagine you've got a school, it's well-funded, everyone has exactly enough for maintenance, staff, faculty, and then two students leave, somewhere in the middle of the per pupil spending chart that you found, Rachel. So that's $20,000 is now gone from the school. Where do you take that from? Do you fire one TA? Do you cut a mental health professional's time in half? It's not as simple as just saying, we're just going to provide two less units of education. And one of the things I've heard from more center-left education advocates is that the charter school legislation, the backpack funding legislation, would not be as odious if it provided some other funding mechanism to make sure that there was something to fill in those gaps. Yeah, and Dr. Pham talked about this major report that was done by researchers from Rutgers, from University of Miami, from Cornell University, that North Carolina is one of the lowest funded per pupil states in the whole entire country. And our means are greater that we can fund public education to a degree that we can. I think the statistic in this report was they could afford about 3,000 more per student. But I mean, it is the political reality and talking about Dr. Faust, the district did lose about 1,000 students last year. So, I mean, that is their reason for we need to live within our means. I heard that over and over again at these meetings that I attended. Yeah. All right, Rachel, you've covered a lot of ground, and we'll have links to your three-part series this week and a ton of other resources. But before we go, I want you to give us just a sampling of some of the other questions that you put to the researchers about these discussions the task force have been having. Yes. The first one, how they should focus their efforts. Dr. Pham of NC State said they should really focus on those schools who really need it and they shouldn't really necessarily spread that support too thin because then it won't make a difference at all. He understands that that might not be politically feasible because it is a focus of resources in specific schools like these low performing and is that necessarily fair? But we've talked about there are significant needs here and If you want to make a difference, you do need to focus your efforts. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely going to run up against this kind of zero-sum argument we've heard in a lot of these issues, but I take his point. Another issue was that the task force should really partner with an academic institution to kind of monitor their actual progress because there is so much that is being asked of teachers and administrators, and sometimes they just don't have the bandwidth to do the reporting, to basically figure out what's working and what's not, whereas an academic institution is basically built for that. That's right, because a lot of times he said when he comes in to help a school out, you know, they have these goals. And then did you measure these goals somehow? And and then they say, yeah, we need your help with this. So if if you could get ahead, if schools could get ahead on these quality checks, then, then they could really understand the progress that they're making. And then the next one, I talked with Dr. Domina and talking about this community support model and you talking about working with the parents because teachers and staff should have, and I'm sure they are having these honest conversations with parents and guardians about what they collectively want for the student, not your student needs this. And the parents think, oh, they need something else. So to really try to eliminate working at cross purposes. And if you don't try to do that, then this could potentially lead to disaffection among the families because they felt like they were not a part of helping their child. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things we've heard from frustrated parents is that when a school is really working well for them, even if it is one of these lower performing schools, it's when there is that engagement back and forth with their teachers. You know, another issue you were telling me about is that no one 
No one you talk to no one. <laughs> likes what is called the 80-20 model. What is the 80-20 model? Yes. So in my reporting on the task force, I have links to this. But in North Carolina, the way that the state report cards are run, you know what your school's grade letter is. And that is based on 80% proficiency on end-of-grade tests versus 20% on growth. And Dr. Smith of UNCW said that we are one of the only states in the entire country that has the breakdown like this. Some have breakdowns like 50-50. And he said that Catherine Truitt, she's a Republican, she's the state superintendent, she also is looking into this 80-20 model and wants to change it. And I talked to Dr. Domina. He said basically the ABCDF, all that shows you is the socioeconomic status of the students that go to that school. Right. You're not really getting a deep insight. Okay. So the last thing, and this was Dr. Smith was talking about, really looking at this working condition survey. And again, as as you reported, 33% of principals said they felt respected, which is a nice way of saying that two-thirds of principals didn't feel respected. So how do they work that into this conversation? Yeah, Dr. Smith was saying that potentially some principals or some teachers could join the task force. And the task force has allowed principals to come to share their experiences with the task force so they can make better informed decisions about moving forward. They also, we talked about, did this principal needs assessment. So they are doing a lot of outreach to listen to the principals and see what they need and try to support them in the best way that they can. But to take that very seriously. And if people are saying they're not feeling valued or listened to, to really make that a priority. All right. Well, Rachel Key, thank you so much for your reporting. I know there is much more to cover and I know you'll be on it. But for now, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Newsroom. Thanks to my colleague, Rachel Keith, the academic experts who lend us their time and expertise, and the members of the Turnaround Task Force who allowed Rachel to sit in on their meetings so we could bring you this reporting. Thanks also to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and you can find it as a podcast. Pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts, except for Stitcher, which is sadly going away. R.I.P. Stitcher. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, and yes, that does include a potential future show on charter schools, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>